Welcome to Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store Soho in New York. Please welcome this evening's moderator, Perry Nemiroff from Collider. Hey guys. So I am so, so excited to be here tonight. One, because we have two super cool and talented people back there who are gonna come out and talk to us in a little bit, but also because this movie is an incredible movie. I had the pleasure of seeing the premiere screening at South By back in March, and still to this day, it's one of my favorite movies of the year. It is so much fun. I'm a big horror fan myself, especially slasher movies, and they just do so much with everything you love about those movies, but then on top of that, it's also incredibly entertaining and satisfying in and of itself, so there's just so much to offer. Before we start the discussion, let's see a little bit about what Final Girls has to offer with the trailer. campsite slasher films. Max's mom plays Nancy, this shy girl next door. Nice legs, what time they open. It's cool you get to remember your mom this way. At least I get to see her on the anniversary of her death, even if she is being chased by a psycho. Somebody's coming. Hey, do you guys know the way to Camp Bluefinch? Tina. So we're in the movie. Oh, hi. What's your name? <laughs> Best summer ever! Anyone want to help me pick some strawberries? Nope, but I'll give you a hand with those melons. Talking about her boobs. Oh, writing is so bad. What is that noise? It's Billy. He's coming. Everyone who has sex in this movie dies. It's awesome. No sex. Run! Wait, wait, wait. Selfie time. Okay. Two. How do we get out of here? Movies like this end when the final girl kills the bad guy and the credits roll. That's Paula. That's the final girl. We just have to stay with her till the end of the movie. Oops. I want to know where they keep the hard work. I want chainsaws and big-ass knives, and I want them now. Um, guys, what's happening? Why am I colorblind? Am I having a stroke? We're in a flashback. I wonder if all this blood is just corn syrup, you know? Like these characters are walking around with just corn syrup in their veins. Oh, no. Oh, God, that's blood. I know in the movie you're supposed to die, but that doesn't mean you have to, right? What do we do now? We fight. trailer. All right, guys, so please join me in welcoming the director of The Final Girls, Todd Scholz-Straussen, and star Malin Ackerman. Doing well. How are you guys doing? 
Hi, guys. Oh, look at that puppy. Hi, Steve. All right. Can you talk a little bit about directing your first feature, a very Harold and Kumar 3D Christmas, and what the process was like having that come out and then moving on to this? Because that was a lot of fun. So I imagine you start getting director offers. Uh, I made that movie. I was 29 years old, and it was my first big movie. And uh, it was really exciting to make it, and it was great, and I thought it was really cool and really fun, and it was very difficult to actually to shoot that movie. We did it in 3D, and I was a kid, and I had inherited this sort of studio franchise. It's just, it was sort of hard. Sometimes people wouldn't support the things I wanted to do if I was ambitious or had some imagination. They maybe weren't so excited about that. Um, but the movie came out, and it was, just, it was huge and helpful, and it was great. But then I wanted to do something smaller afterwards. I wanted to do something where, when I did feel ambitious or imaginative, people would support me and be like excited by it. And so I chose this movie and tried to fight to get it made because I felt this would be more, more me. Now, are you a big genre fan? Because I know that you approach this not specifically as a horror movie, but more so as a comedy, right? Um, yeah, kind of as a comedy. It's more the sort of the story of the mother and the daughter is what was, I think, in enticing to Marlon and myself and all the cast and the writers uh, who came up with the idea in the first place. I think it was more about telling that story of um, a girl who loses her mom and gets a second chance to be with her in almost a weird kind of a dream and the horror and the comedy are servicing that story. Was the mother-daughter aspect always in the script from day one? That was the whole script. I mean, the, the way that the movie was conceived of by Josh Miller and Mark Fortin was you know, Josh's dad was a famous actor, and he played the exorcist, he played the priest in The Exorcist, and died. And Josh, you know, that's very sad when a parent dies, and Josh was having a hard time with that, and the only time he could sort of revisit or see his dad was on the big screen, getting thrown down a flight of stairs and out windows and murdered all the time in that movie. And so they really wanted to write and tell a story about, you know, losing a parent. And I think that for them, they tried to write it straight, like a straight melodrama, and it just was like dense and heavy and just not pleasant. And I think that through fiction, they're able to get more to the heart of it. It's a little bit like all that jazz, where like that movie was started off as like just the most depressing story about just death. And they were like, hey, people like your singing and dancing movies, Bob Fosse. Can you just please add some singing and dancing? And so it turned into this autobiographical musical. And that's why that movie is amazing, because it's using the genre to tell a really personal story. Well, that's what's so special about this one, is that you're going to be laughing. It's tense. But then, I mean, I cried once or twice during this movie, <laughs> thanks to you. This movie's all the feelings, guys. It's all the feelings. Feelings that you wouldn't expect to have, too. So can you tell me now a little bit about the casting process? Is this the kind of situation where you just have to pick who you want and make offers, or are you doing auditions and chemistry reads? Um, well, it was a small indie movie, so there were lists of people of, um, you know, there were, there were, they wanted certain kinds of people in the movie to get the movie made, and there was that sort of process for, for years and years. But I thought it was just really important with the cast and be able to feel the tone of the movie in the cast. And the tone of the movie is really crazy. It is. It's funny and it's sweet and it's grounded, but it's crazy and it's all this stuff. And so I thought if you could just see a poster with these people in it, you would get it. So there's big comedy in the movie. So there's like Adam Devine and Thomas Middleditch and Angela Trimber. And that's where you get in the comedy. But also it's, it's a really grounded movie that's very, very sweet and tender-hearted and emotional. And so Malin and Thaisa really kind of ground the movie. And they're both so... You guys haven't seen the movie, but... I think you'll like it. Oh, I know you'll like it. Stop that. You will. But Damn. these two really brought so much of the heart uh, to the film. And Thaisa, when we found her, we were just like, oh, that's the fucking movie. Because if you could have her in a scene with Adam Devine in a crop top with the tightest jeans in the world and you can see his testicles, 
My mom's in the audience. Sorry, mom. Uh, that that would be the movie. Those two personalities is kind of the tone of the movie. You do know you need to manufacture some of the clothing from this movie to use as promotional items. I kind of want a Camp uh, Camp Bluefinch T-shirt. Right, we have those. They do exist. We yeah. do they exist. Well, they need they need to be sold. They need to be brought here right now. So, what was your first impression of this show? Because I think I told South by you had told me that you weren't that into horror. I'm not into horror. No, I I I don't have the stomach for it. I need someone to. Um, sleep with, beside, not with. You know what I mean. Um, any takers? <laughs> any geniuses out there? Didn't you learn anything from this um, movie? You do that and you die. Yes, yes, exactly. So uh, let's not do that. Uh, no, but I just, I don't have the stomach for it. I think it's, I know there are some incredible horror films out there, but it's just not my genre. Um, so when I read this uh, script, you know, it doesn't really come at you as a horror film. It, it is, you know, like Todd will say, it, it's sort of, there's so many things going on in it that it was more just like, I've never actually read anything quite like it and was super intrigued, but also super nervous about how he was gonna put this all in one film and tonally how he was gonna make it all come together somehow, um, which he did beautifully. And, and after having met him, I knew that he knew exactly what he was talking about and this was totally his jam and um, felt really comfortable and confident going into it. And again, you know, I just felt like the mother-daughter relationship was so nice and well-written and what a beautiful piece to, to get to work with and, and a lovely arc and something that's really unusual. When I first read it, it felt like it was more like Back to the Future or Pleasantville. That was kind of the impulse of the movie and it seemed like just a really clever cinematic conceit to do a story about loss, the loss of a parent, and the reverbs of a death like that in the middle of a genre that does not take death seriously at all, where the, the bigger the body count, the more fun the movie is. And it seemed like that, that just as a cinematic idea was so clever, and that was sort of the impulse of doing it. Did you guys think much about, like, you personally, how you would fare in a horror movie? Like, wh would you be the final girl in a horror movie, or would you be one of the other stereotypes? I'd like to think I'd be the final girl, of course. <laughs> um, especially, you know. Yeah, but I don't know. There's a few in, the, in our film. I think everyone would fare pretty well. There's a couple that might not. But yeah, I think I'd be a pretty good final girl. Well, now I, think I want to know who wouldn't fare bad. well. I'm not going to tell you that. <laughs> Todd. I'd be the number one boy that dies. <laughs> right off the bat. Exactly. What about other horror movies? Did you ever just like have some fun and think about what it would be like to step into a different one? Like, Would you have a better chance of surviving in this versus like, you know, A Nightmare on Elm Street? Your question is if I've ever thought about being sucked into another horror movie besides well, when, this one? When I watch my horror movies, I like to think about, you know, like, what would I do in that situation? Like, so I think I, like, about it constantly. Like, my favorite horror movie is probably 27 Dresses. And I think, <laughs> and I think I do sometimes, sometimes on a Saturday night, I'll, I'll draw a bath and, you know, I'll put some rose water in the bath. And I will imagine what would it be like to just be Katherine Heigl just for one Day. <laughs> so now to steer the conversation back into Final Girls, we're going to share a little clip for you where you can meet some of the characters. Hey, Nance. That guitar's choice. Thanks, Blake. Bitch and hair. <laughs> okay, so we're in the movie. Uh, how do we get out of here? Yeah, I like that question. That's a really, really good question. Duncan, can you answer that question, please? Uh, what are you talking about? <laughs> it's 1986. Our homes don't exist yet. They're probably just landfills waiting to be turned into crappy subdivisions. We don't exist yet. I know for a fact my parents haven't met because 
I was an unplanned child. Anyone want to help me pick some strawberries? Nope. But I'll give you a hand with those melons. Talking about her boobs. You guys get me, right? Yeah, we do, brother. <laughs> Kurt is insatiable. Um, okay, so Mimi's in the woods. That means everything is right on schedule. She hooks up with that hiker, but then she gets killed, right? Yeah, exactly. Everyone who has sex in this movie dies. It's awesome. I got into <laughs> bodybuilding big time. Yeah, so. oh my God, can I touch it? Yeah, touch it. Oh, wow. Touch it, the backside's just as hard. Touch the backside. Oh That's right, everyone. So now I want to hear a little bit about this location, because you just shot a horror movie in a Girl Scout camp? Is it a horror movie? I don't know. It's like a uh, melodrama. There's blood in a dude running around a with a mask. Movie. There is, it's true. Um, we shot it in a Girl Scout camp. We did. We shot it in a working Girl Scout camp in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, in the middle of the summer, uh, which was uh, wonderful. And there were snakes, rattlesnakes everywhere. And we were there for 26 days, only 26 days we shot this movie in, which is pretty crazy. Uh, every day was like 45 or 50 setups a day, which was a marathon. We were all of us. Were, just exhausted by doing it, but so like passionate and about the project. So, um, and then at the end of the shoot, we did. There's a sequence you guys are gonna see in I don't know in an hour and a half. This is a long talk, so so enjoy. But the uh, slow motion sequence where we lit a guy on fire, had him running around the camp, and we shot that on the last day we were at the camp, and we were running out of time and light, and it was just a whole situation, and we finished it right as the sun was coming up, and we extinguished this man on fire, and then like 30 seconds later, 75 Christian Girl Scouts showed up, ready to have a summer, the summer of their life. <laughs> and they didn't realize we had destroyed their camp. There was a man on fire, the septic tank was broken, and that was their experience that summer. What's and the conversation like with the owners of that camp? Do you tell them what you're doing before you actually go and shoot there? Uh, no. <laughs> I don't think so. No, Probably we, we, the better move. Yeah. We built that cabin, though. We had to get their permission to build this, this beautiful cabin that Katie Byron and her girls built for us, production designer. They so kept they, it, didn't they? What's that? Didn't they keep the cabin? And they kept the cabin. The cabin's still there. Yeah. yeah. So if you guys want to make a pilgrimage to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Well, when this movie becomes a hit, that's going to be a travel hotspot. We're going to show this movie every Halloween in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We're willing it into the universe. In the cabin. How was it designing that cabin? I mean, is it just like a standard cabin? Like you wanted it look, you wanted it to look real, or are there, you know, like trick doors or things to make the camera? Because you have a lot of really mobile shots in there too, and I imagine there needs to be rigs and other things in there. So the, so the cat, you guys haven't seen the movie, so this makes literally no sense. But see the movie, then listen to this. There is one sequence in particular in this movie that is a booby trap sequence and. Um, uh, they've set up sort of a, a slumber party booby trap, almost like Home Alone to, to catch the killer, and everything goes wrong. And I wanted to shoot that sequence in a sort of innovative way you maybe haven't seen in a film before, that, uh, a way that where, the, where the visuals could replicate what it would feel like to be in a panic attack, to be in a spiraling anxiety um, attack. And so we shot it with a motion control camera, which is basically a sort of gigantic robot camera. It's a big rig, and the camera can do all these impossible things that a human-operated camera wouldn't, and the concept was to shoot this huge action sequence with like four very long, uh, complicated shots with no cuts, only four cuts in the whole scene. And I was, um, I was just, I, I was just, I just dug my heels and I was like, we're doing this, I don't care how much it costs, I don't care what happens, this, I'm doing this. 
and but none of the cabins in the camp could fit that camera. So we built a cabin just for this idea that I had had seven months prior. So the cabin was built to spec within inches of just being able to fit the rig. And also, you know, maybe a quarter of the movie takes place in a cabin. We wanted a beautiful, interesting looking place to shoot. And the way the cabin is designed is that the movie wants to feel a little bit dreamy, you know? There's this, there's this impulse of the movie that she's, you know, there's this, she's seeing a parent almost in a dream world, in a movie, is a dream. And so the cabin wanted to feel like a real cabin, like a Friday the 13th, we're using the sort of mint greens and the sort of the colors of those cabins, but it's a little bit bigger, and it's a little bit too perfectly organized, almost like a Wes Anderson. It's a little bit elevated, it's a little bit hyper-real, and we like, we like that idea. What's shooting something like that like from your perspective? Do you have to be super well aware of yeah, like blocking and all the technical stuff, or can you just well, be for in that, character? That shot specifically, uh, that was more of a... I mean, we did quite a few rehearsals to get it right, because it is such a, it's such a choreography that um, is required to make that shot work, and it's really, really cool once you get to see it. Um, I love talking about a movie that nobody's seen yet. It's really cool. Especially um, when it's a really good it one. It is. It's really fantastic. So that was definitely... that. Luckily, there weren't any sort of emotional, crazy, deep moments within that shot because that would have been quite crazy to have to go through that in this... How long was that? Was the one take? It was like two minutes long. It's I mean, it just the camera just goes... It was... Amazing to watch. Um, also, the, when the camera is, it's a robot camera that you push a button and it sort of is able to repeat the moves. And so when you say action, the camera sounds like this. It's just the most horrible noise. And so no one can do dialogue. It all has to get dubbed. So it's not about... Sounds like a nightmare for your sound person. <laughs> yeah, the sound yeah. person went <laughs> over really that thing. They just went for coffee. Leave that for post. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What about the whole tone of the movie? Because it's one thing to be on set and, you know, to do the scenes as you think are best. But then, you know, you edit it together and it's about the timing of the dialogue, the, the color correction, all of that. Were you able to wrap your head around what it would look like in the end while you were shooting? Somewhat. I mean, we got to see little little pieces of it, but and but also you could just tell by the way it was lit. The the film within the film compared to the real world, um, and you know it was it was beautifully done. But I think for the most part, being in it, you're just kind of in it as your character, and um, you know to think of anything on the exterior, like you know there've been questions like how did you prepare to be in a horror movie or a comedy, you know, and you can't really prepare in any sense other than just being present to what's happening in that moment. So whether it's ridiculous and you're this one-dimensional character in a really bad 80s horror flick, or you're this all of a sudden, you know, three-dimensional woman who's realized that she's mortal, um, is, is, is just a big shift. So I think the focus was more on... Um, the characters and and being present to the moment, but but for sure you could um, get a sense of what was going on. And Todd is very good at explaining. He's very vocal and um, explains things. He's like an encyclopedia, so you get everything clearly. <laughs> so we I, I like chit chatting. <laughs> I like chatting with people. What do you want? I don't know. Let's hear a little more about Todd as an actor's <laughs> director, because this movie, I mean, you could totally tell certain things like that one shot you were just talking about need to be very planned out, but yeah. then others, I mean, it just feels so incredibly natural, and there's some fun bloopers at the end of the movie, so we know that you were messing around a lot. Yeah, he's, I, I actually don't think any other director could have made this film. Um, I think that Todd is really a spectacular director. I think he's got a very clear and unique vision and it really makes you comfortable 
I, I mean, I totally put my trust in him always because um, he's so capable of sharing his vision with you that you just feel like, all right, I'm, I'm definitely being taken care of as well as just the regular sort of scene to scene. He's, he's wonderful at explaining what he needs and, and where we're going with it and is delightful to work with. And I know it just, I mean, if he wasn't here, I'd say the same thing too. <laughs> but it just, I, I, I like it when somebody has a vision and they have a direction and they know where they're going. Because a lot of times you can be on a set and you feel like the director just, it's like a, and you've, I'm sure we've all seen results of films that you just kind of feel like the tone was kind of off and it's so important. And especially with this one that has, you know, three different worlds that we're living in. So um, he nailed it and he nailed it really well. So I'm proud of you. <laughs> Thank you. Let's roll into another clip. Yeah, Are maybe. we going to do a little singing now? All right, let's check out one more clip. Michael, row your boat ashore, hallelujah. Michael, row your boat ashore, hallelujah. Sister, help to trim the sails, hallelujah. Sister, help to trim the sails, hallelujah. Jordan's river is deep and wide, hallelujah. Got a home on the other side, hallelujah. Come on, everyone, sing along. Duncan is dead. We have to warn them. Please, they're morons. I want to know where they keep the hardware and the stuff. I want chainsaws and big-ass knives, and I want them now. What am I going to tell our parents? I don't want to die here, guys. Me either. There's got to be a way to get home. Did I miss the kumbaya circle? To give you some context, right before that scene begins, a very important character dies and it's the first time that people in the movie realize that they could actually be hurt in this movie and right after you find that out they're stuck in the happiest kumbaya circle of all time speaking of all that though that scene that scene makes me think of you know this is a pg-13 movie so there's not as much blood as you would expect but at the same time it's still incredibly tense so can you talk a little bit about balancing the need to hit that rating while still making a scary movie when we were writing the movie it was intended to be r but but the studio said, make it PG-13, and I got, I got really activated, I got real angry, and I started freaking out at everybody. But then, you know, a week later, we started to design the movie and cast the film, and especially when we began to shoot the movie, it would just became so clear that this is not a movie about that. This is a, this is a tender, sweet, sort of human story. And, and if, they're, if we're relishing in the kills, it just sort of pops the tone. It would have broken the tone. I, I think that was really important for all of us that at the end of the movie, you're actually... There's a chance that you're going to be moved, that you're going to be touched by the, the real central story. here. Even though it's a fun, cool, hilarious, badass, cool movie, we just wanted to make sure that at the end it, it resonated. And I think that if there was all this bloodlust and people's bodies getting decapitated, it would have just broken it. So the truth is that I think even if we did shoot the hard R, gross-out, dead-alive Peter Jackson movie, I would have cut it all out before it was finished. So, yeah. It makes it much more so about the characters who are dying versus how they die. Yeah. Yeah. So now that scene also made me think about 
I guess because music is involved, a certain dance in the movie. And nobody here has seen this dance, but I know the second that they see the movie, that's probably all they're going to be thinking about after. So how do you shoot a scene like that? How many times does she actually have to do that? Uh, you're talking about Angela Trimber, who is an amazingly talented young woman. We were friends before this film, and there was no one else that I thought should be Tina, the party girl, uh, besides her. And there is a scene in the film where she's, she's the kind of character she wants to just take her clothes off. All she wants to do is take her clothes off, have a party. That's all she wants to do. All she brought to camp was a diaphragm, and she's ready to go for it. And, and, um, but if you, have a, if, you, if you take your clothes off, the bad guy comes. They do not want her to do that until the perfect moment, and she has this sort of killer striptease. And we, she's a dancer. She just, Angela Trimber in real life, she just wants to dance. That's all she wants to do, standing in line at the grocery store, in the car, she's eating sushi. She's got these amazing YouTube videos that you she can She makes these YouTube like videos, dance like no one's watching. In the middle no of nowhere, watching. yeah. She has, uh, she does, uh, um, she's on an all-girls basketball team in Los Angeles and does these halftime shows. She's wonderful, at Angela Trimber, follow her. <laughs> and, um, and, but for that scene, I was like, don't even show me what you're going to do. That We had no choreographer. She did not prepare anything. She listened to a bunch of crazy 80s music and it was four in the morning she drank four red bulls real fast and then we just shot it and she turned green and almost died that night but it was her last night on the movie and she knew even if she died what a glorious way to go out the scene is well worth it and how many times does she actually have to do because i i think you only have two shots of that two mm, angles uh we only have you, the, well, there's only one angle because it's angle. looking straight into the door, but we did it maybe five or six times. That's not that bad. I kept looking at the character standing oh, no, in the it's background, pretty, too. It's pretty bad. Six times that much dancing, that is a, that's aerobic. It looks exhausting. She's got stamina. That girl's got stamina. Her heart was going to explode. Yeah. <laughs> I was very impressed. And now I want to know a little bit about this 360 shot you do, too. There's a scene in the movie where the characters are trying to run out of the movie, and they're going in circles and circles, and they just keep coming back to the same place. And the camera never cuts. So are there cheats in there? There are cheats in there. Um, I think that for me, may, being a filmmaker, making movies, one of the most exciting parts, I think that almost most of the job in a way is to come up with a way to get the story or the feeling or the mood or the narrative out there in a visual way. And I think that sometimes so many movies that I see now feel like they're photographs of people standing and talking to each other. And that just... That's not really what movies are or what they could be. Those aren't the movies that I grew up thinking were amazing. And so I like using the language. I think that you should use the language. And so that is an example of a moment in the film where what's happening is that the movie has entrapped the characters. They're stuck in the movie. They cannot escape the movie. They're running in circles. They're trapped in a loop. So how can you visually express that instead of just having someone say it, you know? And so, yeah, the movie literally starts looping. There's a, it keeps on 360, it goes over and over and over. There's three little, you know, magical invisible cuts in there. So we did it three times. And maybe another anecdote about that shot is that on a, on a, bigger, budget, on a bigger budget movie, the way to do that shot is that you would have, um, you would have a, a little um, repeatable head You'd have a sort of a little gizmo on the tripod where the camera could rotate at the same exact speed all three times. So they're very easy to connect the shots to stitch them together. But we did not uh, have money or time. So we just had a man holding the camera, walking in circles, trying to match his speed as best he could. And that's how we did that shot. Job well done to that guy. Adam Bricker, thank you so much. Actually, another unsung hero of this movie. Who is the guy who plays your killer, Billy? Uh, his name is Dan, and he's the nicest gentleman from Louisiana. He's a stuntman. He's a father. 
He's massive, and he's the sweetest. It's one of those things, you know. It's just you, bigger they are, the sweeter they are. It's like you you can't even is believe. That one, is that one of those that's things? One of those things. What? The smaller they are, the meaner they are. I was thinking of dogs. You think big dogs, and you're just like, oh, they're you know, they think they're little dogs. Little dogs think they're big dogs. (laughs) This guy is just like, he. You want to cuddle him? He's like a big teddy bear. He's so 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 lovely. He had a song in his heart, and he sang it for us every day. (laughs) How do you go about designing that character, and especially the mask? Because like, obviously, we know what you're going for, but do you have to do a trial and error to make the mask just right? Yeah, we. It was difficult. Always the idea in the script was that it would be um, it'd be based off of totem poles. It'd be sort of a totem mask. It's a summer camp that seemed like kind of a new invention for you know a sort of a slasher summer camp horror genre movie. And we were taking some cues, obviously, from Friday the Thirteenth with Jason's mask, and also a little bit from The Burning, um, which is a great older horror film. But you know, we the we didn't totally know how to design the mask, and we were trying to make totem poles. And what's so scary about Jason is that you know there's not a lot of features. It's sort of dark eyes, almost no nose, and so we were trying to sort of modulate where it was. But we wanted there to be like a face, like the totem stuff. And there was a point where the mask looked like Eugene Levy. <laughs> it, we just totally fucked it up. Like it wasn't scary at all. It looked like just like a Jewish Canadian guy. Just do you want some soup? So. So we had to do a lot of we had to do a lot of work. We had to get rid of the eyebrows. <laughs> we had big eyebrows. We, we had to get rid of the eyebrows and really and really dark and really darken the face because a lot of the movie takes place in the daylight. And so it, it, it yeah that was one of actually the hardest design challenges of the film is to figure out how to make that threatening, especially in the daylight, and not look like everyone's America's favorite dad. I kind of want to see what the movie would be like with that version of the mask. I feel like that's the wrong kind of comedy though. It'd be an R. <laughs> How about all of the nods? I mean, there's a million nods to other horror movies in here, but is there any little thing like Easter eggs that you've hidden that you hope people are going to keep an eye out for and notice? I would say that one of the things in the movie is there are some things that are really obviously um, you're kind of cribbing from other horror movies. You know, there's a Kiki Mama, there's that. There's those sort of really obvious things. But I think some of the fun for, for me was to come up with sort of visual nods to some of my favorite horror filmmakers. So there's... There's like, you know, big primary color washes throughout the film that are kind of like Dario Argento and the music is very much John Carpenter and that scene we were talking about with the booby trap is like a Brian De Palma on steroids. Another fun drinking game you can play at home with your friends if you watch this film is that Alia Shawkat, who plays Gertie in the movie, you may know her as Maybe from Arrested Development, she's amazing. She had gotten into a really bad bicycle accident before we shot and her hand was broken and and she almost didn't do the movie because she just wasn't sure if she could be in front of the camera. And so she kind of has like a dead zombie hand in the movie. She her left hand was like she couldn't so so a fun drinking game is as you're watching the movie, you can just like watch out for the dead hand. When she points at things or tries she can't open a door, like the hand doesn't work. So that's another fun story. You that's an say Easter egg. That. That's all I'm gonna notice now. Good. That's all you should notice. Did you guys get to take anything home from set? You probably did. We got the t-shirts, the Camp Bluefinch t-shirts, which was amazing. But no, you guys left most of it there, didn't you? I don't know. Just left re- it for the Girl Scouts. I feel like just really good friends. I feel like really memories that'll last a lifetime. <laughs> no, I took all the paddles home. And also the Pendletons. Uh, I love, they, there were these beautiful painted paddles all over the, um, all over the cabin. We, uh, I used the budget of the movie to buy Pendleton blankets that my sister and I wanted to have in our houses very badly. <laughs> and we picked out the ones that we wanted, and then we made someone else buy them for us, and now I have them. 
and they're beautiful. All right, now we got one more clip from you and we saved the best for last. This clip is awesome. I'm not gonna spoil anything about it. Let's just show it and we'll talk about it after. Many questions about that scene that we just saw. First off, I mean, you just said it before a little. The guy's really on fire. This, it's not done in post at all. Not only is the guy on fire, but they are really right there in front of him. I don't know how they let us do that. I was like, they got to be closer. They got to be closer. And we had a guy named Bill Scharf, who's this amazing stunt coordinator. That was like, yeah, it shouldn't be a problem. I was like, oh, great. Uh, let's keep on doing it. The only thing in that shot that's not real is some of the embers that are sort of flying off of the back of the bad guy because there was this... There was this intuition or this intention that this movie should also be beautiful and kind of hyper real and super cinematic. And so we wanted the fire. We wanted that scene to be scary and tense, but also funny and also beautiful, kind of mesmerizing, like a Bill Viola piece of art or something. And so we added some extra little accents just to make it feel a little bit more ethereal. And what are you told for a scene like that? How do you know how far ahead to keep of him so you don't do anything you shouldn't? Right. Uh, it was a little, definitely a little nerve-wracking because you have a man on fire and you really just want to make this happen as quick as possible because it's freaking hot in that thing, I'm sure. But we, we kind of rehearsed beforehand and got the distance right and everything and it's not actually in slow motion. So, um, just in case you were wondering. <laughs> uh, no, but it was, it, was, it was all planned out really well. Obviously, again, when you have something like that going on, you have to make sure that you know, you hit your marks, right? So not in slow motion, obviously, but what kind of notes do you give your actors so that it looks right in slow motion and not maybe cartoonish? I'd be like, guys, get it together. The sun is coming up. We have to get this shot. It Those was literally my coming up and the night. birds were chirping. Yeah, I, yeah. I wasn't attuned to them that night. I was like, come on, guys, get in position. Stop messing around. We got to do this. We Three more shots. We messing around. Alexander Ludwig was not paying rap. attention. Okay. That's different. You were wonderful every <laughs> Thank night. Thank you. <laughs> but that Ludwig character was a real screwball. So big ensemble here. Who could you count on to nail their lines and get it right? And who's the one who screwed around the most? 
No, everyone was amazing. Everyone showed up prepared, and they were great, and they were all friends together. What, you want to say you? me a bone, yeah. Marlon was the best. Marlon was the best one. I'd only work with Marlon again. No, they were all great. <laughs> 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 that felt not right. That, didn't feel right. that wasn't right. Like when you asked for a compliment, then I gave it to you, and then everyone like left? It. No, I didn't like it. <laughs> no, um, everyone was great. It really felt like we were a bunch of, all of us were all very much the same age, the cast and the crew, and it felt like we were a bunch of kids sort of like let loose at summer camp for 26 days trying to get sure, away I'll with something. <laughs> You're 26. 20s. You're 26 years old. X, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that, that's what it felt like. It felt like I was head counselor and they were all campers and we were all on the same page and we were just like working, we are just working our asses off because I think that, I mean, I think we all kind of loved this movie and just wanted to see it out in the world, the kind of movie that we would go to see on a Friday night with our friends and just go, you know, blast off to the moon. That's what we were trying to make. And we almost had no adult supervision for the entirety of this and the few adults we had there either couldn't stop us or were down with the cause and were super supportive. They gave us everything we needed to make the movie, and so it was amazing. I'm just curious now, what makes someone an adult on this movie? Like, who is the adult? Well, the people that say no. <laughs> so, so you're a producer the ones that the try, The ones that try to uh, diminish and control you. The producers were great on this. It was... Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. yeah. Was there ever a time on set when someone said, no, you can't do this, we have to change it? Yeah, <laughs> yes. Can you share any examples? I mean, it's just the setup. It's just the setup of how it works on set. Like my job is to never stop shooting ever, and their job is to not go over budget. So that's just how it works, and it's totally fine, and everyone knows that. And they would be like, "Hey, Todd, we're two hours over shooting now. You have to stop shooting." And I'd be like, "Get away from me! This is my vision." And so that would happen every day. <laughs> Can we expect any deleted scenes? Because I know there's some, there's some extras if you get the movie on iTunes. So can we see anything that's not in the final cut? There, the, yeah, I, I loaded the DVD. And if you buy this on iTunes, I loaded it with special features. Because when I was in high school and college, I just almost everything that I learned about how to make a movie was from watching movies and watching those commentaries and special features. And I just loved that stuff so much. I had to sit in the house for days on end just watching, just like nourishing my mind with this stuff. So I wanted to have a DVD. That, so we have multiple commentary tracks. Me and the actors and the writers have a second one. There's, we, uh, I did previs for the, some of the more complicated um, visual stuff just to sort of communicate to the cast and crew what we were trying to pull off. I, I did previs with our visual effects company, Ingenuity Engine. And, um, and those are on there, and everything has commentaries. I'm, I will not stop talking about this movie, even after it's come out. So what's like the big advice you would give to someone who wants to go make a horror, uh, an independent horror Ooh. movie especially? Um, what would advice would I give to them? Yeah, like what, like what are the, no, the yeses and nos? Like what can you do and what's going to get you in big trouble? Jesus Christ, I don't, I don't know. I mean, don't have it star all white men. No one wants that anymore. I would try to keep it sort of feeling very modern and very progressive and very cultural. I think that horror movies and slasher movies are kind of an interesting genre that you could track culture through in a kind of an interesting way. Those are the best ones. The best of them do that. And so in the 70s, you see sort of very sort of sex-positive, crazy, shaggy 70s horror movies. The 80s becomes, you can feel like the Reagan influence in these sort of zany horror movies. The 90s become meta and self-aware, and you have Scream and Kevin Williamson, and they're all amazing. And then in the 2000s, you have things like Cabin in the Woods that sort of tilt maybe into fantasy, you know, a little more into fantasy stuff. Um, and then this movie is, uh, you know, to me, I think culture is maybe softening a little bit. People are maybe getting a little bit nicer. They're teaching 
mindfulness meditation in the army? I mean, I know things aren't great out there, but I think people are maybe a little bit more aware they're trying at least. And so this movie in the slasher, whatever, is like, this is the one that's not about the murders. It's about the aftermath of a murder. It's about the, the human toll, what, what it means to lose someone. And I think that if you want to go make a horror movie that maybe has some sort of a cultural re relevance, it's about sort of feeling where culture is and working that into the story. It also does feel like we're getting a lot of horror comedies lately, and also ones that feel like kind of like 80s throwbacks, like classics and not, you know, modern, modern spins on things. Like what kind of thing? I, thi I think of like specifically It Follows and The Babadook that have that certain texture to it that isn't I, so, like, glossy. Uh, I don't agree. I think that those movies are... Su I think that, like, The Babadook, for instance, is, again, using the genre to sort of, like, say something about motherhood and how terrifying maybe being a parent is. I think that movie is actually so sophisticated in terms of what it's trying to dramatize. It just happens to be using the genre to push that agenda, similar to what we're doing, you know? I haven't seen it. <laughs> you, would, it's, you would scare your pants off. Um, yeah. Would you stick in the genre after this? Horror? Yeah. Um, no, I mean, again, I don't really, I mean, it, it really felt to me more like Back to the Future or Pleasantville when I read it. I mean, um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, if I would do it again, if it made sense if the story was right and everything, and I do when I was a kid, I wanted to be Dick Smith and Tom Savini. That's who I wanted to be in my life. But no, I think I'd go make the Fisher King next if I could. <laughs> Is uh, there any scene in the movie that seeing it, final cut, all done, that really surprised you or that you're particularly proud of? Uh, I definitely think that the final scene between my character and Thaisa's is just such a beautiful... It was, it was really well-directed. Um, I got to give credit to, to Todd because it was just nuanced enough and the tone was beautiful and yeah I'm pretty proud of that scene I thought it I thought it did the trick I was sitting in the theater with a friend of mine in Toronto and and he got tears and I saw him wiping his tears and that's pretty good to get guys crying publicly <laughs> we all should be crying publicly all the time all the we time. used to we used to Soft King Arthur sensitive. myths Greek mythology the men are crying after battle and it's a sign of strength <laughs> and what are you looking at right now in terms of getting offered other horror movies? Um, like, is there a specific type of thing that people are coming to you for? Like, just in terms of the genre, particularly? Uh, not yet. I mean, because it hasn't come out yet. And um, I've, I've been busy here doing a TV show. So, so, you know, it's been kind of lack of time. But I would love to do, listen, this kind of genre. This is just such a, a different type of, it's just not just a horror film. I, I don't think I'll get the opportunity to do another film like this unless Todd does a sequel and we all get to be in it. Um, but uh, we'll see. It's just, it's kind of like one of those tremendously unique opportunities to do something like this. It is really like a back to the future, which is, you know, the writing behind it and the imagination is just beyond. And But I would absolutely love to try doing a horror film. I don't want to watch it. I will never watch it after it's done, but I will be in it and I'll be great at screaming. So, well, you you, were, you had the best scream. You had an amazing <laughs> scream. Because I was really freaked yeah, out. But she brought it up, not me. So now I have to ask. Uh, sequel. Not necessarily if you're going to do it, but is that something that's almost expected of you at this point when you make a horror movie? We would love to do a sequel, but it honestly is not up to us. It's, it's up to you guys and everyone that's at home listening or anyone that sees the movie. It really is about you guys watching the movie and passing it on and spreading the word and hashtagging final girls. No, do whatever you want. But... It really is about watching it and passing it along and convincing a bunch of accountants in Culver City that there should be a second one. 
we would all love to do it. And the writers have ideas and I have ideas and it'd be so fun to get the gang back together and just try try to come at it again. And do you brainstorm those ideas before you even go into shooting this or is that kind of putting the cart before the horse? No, we did not have time. No, we didn't do that. No, we were only thinking about this. And do you have ideas that you didn't get to you didn't get to fulfill on this one that you've kind of got in your back pocket? Yeah. Way, there, ways to up the bar? Yeah, there was a there was a moment where we we had done a lot of work on the script together, Josh and Mark and I, and I think there was a moment where I probably pushed the script a little bit too hard into some of the meta stuff. That was it was it was interesting actually to sort of what to feel the modulation of like when is it going to break the emotion and when is it actually in service of the emotion and and so I used to have an idea there was a scene there's a montage in the film when that was going to originally have uh, like a Thomas Crown affair with the wipes and everything and people were going to be getting knocked around by the wipes and they couldn't communicate because the music was playing and there's no dialogue in a montage and it was just too much I mean, chill out Todd so we took it we took it out and there were a couple of other things like that that I would love to cram in a sequel you got a little of that in there, though, with the uh, the year and kind of people tripping over the words. Yeah. That's some clever stuff there. It's clever. Thank you so much. How about designing the flashback stuff? Because that's something that, you know, that could work or that could not work. And here it happens to work very well. So was it a big design process to nail the look? Uh, one of the fun things about some of these meta, some of the fun things about the meta idea is the imagination exercise was, you know, what are the tropes of those movies? What are the tropes of any movie, really? It wasn't just horror. It was like, what are the tropes of movies, and how can you bring those into a three-dimensional world, into our actual world? What would it be like if you got sucked into a flashback? And so one of the visual signifiers of a flashback in those 80s movies is that kind of watery, dissolved, you know, diddly-doo, that, that thing. Diddly, you know what I'm I didn't know it had a sound effect. Yeah, it has a did, you know. I was going to call it like Never a ripple effect. Wayne's World. <laughs> anyway, so um, we wanted to, what would it be like if, if that water dissolve happened to you in real life? It would maybe feel like the room was melting around you, like the whole the ceiling was dripping like candle wax, and so that became the idea of what it would be like to actually be inside one of those things, and that's kind of what we did in the movie, but you know, that was one of the fun things about just weaving that all the way throughout the film. All right, I got one last question for you and then we're gonna put it to the audience. Did you purposely make this movie 92 minutes? I didn't notice until I was watching it on my computer and I could see the timer, but I'm like, damn, it, it's 92 minutes. Pretty clever, right? Thanks. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Of course, I was very impressed. Yeah, we were, we were paying attention when we were making the movie. We were trying. <laughs> All right, so I think we are gonna turn it to the audience now. First of all, congratulations. There's nothing better than an original horror film to enjoy. Um, this is actually something you guys have brought up, which is tone. Um, you can't have a horror movie that's too scary if it's a satire, and it can't be too funny. So as an actress and a director, how do you find the right tone and balance for a film like this without going too far into one area? Well, I think the fun of it um, for us actors, um, the fun of it was that we got to explore a little bit with tones within the film, which is kind of unusual as well. And that's what we wanted to do was, you know, I, I essentially get to play three characters in one. And one of the characters is in the real world. So it's a very different tone, very real and depressing um, with real life problems. Uh, and then, you know, and then we come into this sort of fantasy world and you get to play this sort of one-dimensional, one-track-minded, ditzy, person who, you know, has no clue that she's a character in a movie or a person for that matter. Um, 
and then going into you know becoming aware of her mortality and which was super exciting as an actor to have an arc like that to be able to play but yeah absolutely to get back to your question um i think tonally again we all have to depend on todd to know exactly what he wants and 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 i think we all had an understanding of what he want what his vision was as far as tone for for what did we call them the realsies and the fictionals the f- fictionals and the realsies yeah so everyone sort of had a set tone, which is interesting also in and of itself to be two different tones within a film together. So really it all came down to Todd being able to, you know, hone us in if we were going a little too far or too crazy. And, you know, and... and I think for me, I think f- there was always this big question when we were getting the money to make the movie is what is the tone? Is it funny? Is it scary? Is it... What is it what? They, no one knew what it was and it wasn't totally evident on the page. And it, to me, it... To me, it was always very clear. I don't know why it was so clear. I, I read so many things, but this one I somehow was like, yeah, I got this. I know this one. This I could figure this out. I just could figure it out. And, and for me, the, the filmmakers that I, that I worship the most are the ones almost that when you see them be interviewed and then you watch their movies, you're like, oh, yeah, that's the same voice. So when you like watch Martin Scorsese be interviewed, he's like this crazy firecracker, wiry, hilarious, but like it's real intense. And, you're like, and you watch his movies and you're like, Oh, yeah, 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 of course. And then you watch, you know, a Richard Linklater film, and you're like, oh, and you hear him be- talk, and he's this he's, he's, he's American philosopher poet. It's gentle, amazing genius. And, you know, and I just, I, I love when you can really feel a filmmaker's voice so strongly in the movie. And so, to me, the tone was not an academic or intellectual exercise. It was like if I sat down for dinner with you and told you the story of Final Girls, it would sound a lot like it feels when you watch it. I'd be like... It's going to start off kind of intense and sad. It's a real nice story with a mother and a daughter. But then, guess what? Something crazy is going to... And that's the, that's the tone of the movie. It's just me telling it. And that's maybe why the movie is visually so, you know, um, ambitious or vibrant. There's, it's really... I'm putting a lot of myself in the movie almost as a way that I can contain the tones in a, in a, in a way, maybe. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the score? I thought it was really interesting, especially in the third uh, clip that we saw. Yeah, um, Greg Jenkins, uh, Gregory James Jenkins is a little genius guy, and we have done uh, previously a lot of short films together, and um, he is just the greatest. He did the score all by himself on an Apple computer, as a matter of fact, and um, and uh, and the references, he wanted it to feel like you know those sort of scores. The, a lot of the reference points were John Wakeman's score for The Burning and John Carpenter's stuff from the 70s and 80s and Tangerine Dream score for Sorcerer. That, that's sort of like a really heavy, weird synth, um, synth environment. But we also then wanted to sort of bring it a little bit into the modern world. So it's about taking those synth sounds and distorting it in a weird way or layering it in a way or sharpening it up in a weird way that, where it would feel retro and modern at the same time. And the way that we did the score actually was um, we, were, we edited the film in New York. I lived four, four doors up from the store we are in right now while we were editing it with Greg. We lived on this block editing the film. And, um, and he was doing the music as we were cutting the movie, which is not something that I guess normally happens maybe. But we didn't have a lot of time to cut the movie. And normally what happens is, is you use temp score. You, you temp in score into a film from other movies and then you try to replicate that kind of eventually. But we didn't have the luxury. We didn't have any time to be finding the temp. So we had Greg with us in a room and Debbie, the editor, and I would race through a, 
early rough cut of a scene and we would ship it over to Greg's room and Greg would just, you know, for two days without taking a shower and only eating hot dogs and drinking beer and chain smoking and he would just come up with some crazy piece of music and I'd sit there with him, we'd work on it and then that would get shoved under the scene and that was how we sort of, the score of the movie was being created as the movie itself was being cut in order. And when you watch the movie now, I'd say probably 80% of those ideas that we came up with during that crazy 10-week process is still in the film. So it was the, the music and picture were being invented simultaneously. Hey, how's it going, guys? Hey. My favorite horror movie is also 27 Dresses. <laughs> you were great in that. <laughs> a good bridezilla, right? I know. I was like, Get your scary name, shit. Girl. <laughs> so scary. <laughs> um, as a director and as an actor, was there a movie that like changed your course of life? Was like, I have to be a director or I have to be an actor. Do you want to go? Is there one for you specifically? Is there one? My mother's in the audience. Did I have one? I my mom tells this crazy story that when I was maybe two years old, I lived in an apartment building on Queens Boulevard, right across the bridge there, and I would flip out on Fridays. And I wouldn't stop losing my mind until she would take me in the stroller down to the movie theater because I somehow knew that the marquee and the posters were changing. So I think for me, always, there was movies in my life. I don't know why, why or how that happened. And so I don't know if there was one thing in particular, but I will say that when I was, you know, in 10 and 10 to 15 or 10 to 16, the films that I gravitated towards the most were the ones where you could f really feel a filmmaker. So I remember seeing Hudsucker Proxy when I was 13 and being like, holy, who, what, how, what is, or Delicatessen I would see and just lose my marbles. I mean, those were the movies that really affected me or one from the hearts of beautiful film. And those are the ones that really got me. And maybe in college, I think Magnolia was one of the most ambitious things I ever saw. And I saw it 15 times in movie theaters and I just wanted to do that. And, but I, and so, yeah, those are probably some of the ones for me. I actually grew up uh, watching a lot of comedy. Steve Martin um, was one of my mother's favorites, and so you end up kind of getting... <laughs> you, 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 if you're there with your parents, you kind of get the backlash of whatever they're watching. And I, So comedy was always something that, you know... Um, brought light to, to the home and made me want to be a goofball and make my mom laugh all the time because I saw how, you know, the effect that it had. So I think that that's initially why I got into comedy until 27 Dresses, um, my Which first horror film. Which is a stone-cold uh, psychological <laughs> horror film. But ultimately, I don't think, you know, once I actually, I, I, I actually didn't think I was going to become an actress. That wasn't my plan. I was studying something totally different at Orthodontist. University. She was going to be an nope. orthodontist. Nope. nope. Not really. Nope. Per periodontist? Nope. Oh, no. interesting. Gynecologist. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, but I think ultimately once I did get into acting, I got more inspired by actors and actresses. You kind of watch their work, and one of my favorites is Tilda Swinton. I just think that she's so unique, and everything she does is so original, and so she's like a chameleon, that one. She's incredible to watch. So I think it shifted more and just became inspired by actors. Hi. Um, I had a question. Basically, since the, it seems like you love you mentioned it several times in the interview about Back to the Future and comedy. In I guess since you guys said you shot on a camp, did you guys really get into the field and like talk about horror movies you liked, or did you guys reference you more throwing ones that really weren't in the script originally from the other actors that like 
other references and other comedies to really pull the references together are the ones that really weren't originally in the script? Um, I don't think that much. Before we started shooting the movie, I screened uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Or, sorry, I screened Friday the 13th, um, 2 and 4, for the, for the crew and for the cast. Only because Josh and Mark had put a lot of the plotting of those movies into the Camp Bloodbath, which is the film in a film. So there was a lot. I just thought everyone should sort of know what we were kind of mimicking a little bit, you know, in terms of, you know, what, why they're dressed that way and all this stuff. And um, But once we started shooting the movie, we just sort of were making our own movie, and it wasn't super referential. I mean, maybe there's some visual stuff that I would talk about with the DP, and but those things weren't like a big part of the experience. It was more about just we're trying to make Something special. We're just trying. Also, At least we were trying to do something ambitious and I think special. there were quite a few of us on set. Had you referenced a bunch of horror films, we would have looked like there's nothing going on because none of us had seen most of the films that you would talk about. So he would have to explain, which really wasn't necessary because once you're doing the film, you know, you're just kind of in it and you're... You're trying to be. I was like, guys, it's like about it's it's like it's like about eyes without a face, and they were like, Todd, just go 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 home. <laughs> I can't. It's the middle of the day. Uh, working with Alia Shawkat, can you talk a little bit more about that? I know she had a broken hand, but I think she's one of the coolest actresses in Hollywood. She's one of the coolest uh, women maybe I've ever met in life. my life. She's yeah. she's like uh, she's like the female twenty something Johnny Depp is what she's like. I've seen her roll a cigarette with one hand before. She <laughs> she's amazing. She um it made me actually feel very flattered that when I sent her the script, she thought it was cool. I thought that that made me feel like oh this is this is awesome. And she wanted to be in the film, and she came and she, she worked with us. And You hadn't met her before? I hadn't met her before, but I, I wanted to be her friend. <laughs> this was a way to do it. Um, I thought, I've been a fan of hers forever. I think she's the coolest and funniest and just weird, the way she sort of, the, her turn of phrase is very weird and interesting, and it's very funny, but it also feels incredibly grounded and, and real, and that was one of the things that she brought to the movie, I think, is that she did work on her character and she wanted to come up with what that arc of that character would be and she wanted to give it depth and there's a lot of funny jokes in the movie that she improvised or she didn't like a line and I would be like, you don't like this line, but I worked so hard. But then she would suggest what she wanted to do and it was a million times better. I'd be like, oh, thank you for being here and lending me your imagination for this moment. And so that was the experience. She was just really, really awesome. All right, so that's all the time we've got. Thank you both for coming here. Thank, Thank all of you. you for coming here as well. And the final girls on iTunes and in theaters tomorrow. And whatever you say, I highly recommend seeing it in both formats. Yes, see it with a group in either format you want. <laughs>